Hello, my name is Sandy Turnipseed, and I'd like to share my experience with COVID. I first came across the FLCCC group back when my local newspaper was interviewing Dr. Joseph Verone. And so I started following Dr. Verone, and then I was introduced to Dr. Merrick and Dr. Corey, and I started following the whole group and their weekly podcasts. I would wait with bated breath every week for the weekly podcast to come on and I would listen. They had such great information back then. In November of 2020, my nurse daughter who was working with COVID patients in the ICU uh, contracted COVID. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of doctors who would prescribe anything. And we were lucky, we found a doctor who would prescribe ivermectin. And within 48 hours, she was fully recovered. So I knew then that these guys were onto something. And so in December of 2020, uh, instead of taking all the vaccinations and all the boosters, I decided that I was going to try the FLCCC prevention protocol. So I started taking weekly ivermectin from December of 2020 through March of 2022. And in April of this year, I decided I'd give myself a break. I hadn't been sick at all. I didn't even have a sniffle for that 16 months. But I thought, oh, you know, cases are low. I'm gonna go ahead and go off and see what happens. Of course, four weeks later, I get exposed to a friend who tests positive for COVID. So luckily, I knew I had been exposed and I had ivermectin in my medicine cabinet. So I took a dose of ivermectin and I still ended up getting some symptoms. I had a low-grade fever, I had a cough, and I had some body aches. So I continued taking the ivermectin, and within 24 hours, my fever was gone, my body aches were gone. My cough lasted about another week, but a doctor was able to prescribe something for that, and eventually that went away. I don't know what I would have done without this group of men and women that have so vehemently told everyone that early treatment works. They've given me hope for the past two years that this disease is treatable if you give the right medicines at the right time. And it truly is. This group has been like my second family. And I can't say enough about what they've done for me and my family or how things would have been if I didn't know about this protocol. And I just want to thank them from the bottom of my heart, for me and my entire family, for helping us through this. Thank you so much, guys. We are so happy to have Sandy as a part of the FLCCC family. And, you know, it's so great. Thank you for sharing your story with us, because these stories are what keep us going, especially when the going gets rough, as you know, it has been getting rough at times. So folks, please keep sending us your stories. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm creative director of this group, and I'm here tonight with our top doctors, 
Paul Merrick and Pierre Corey, and we have a special surprise expert medical guest coming on who's going to join them in answering lots of your medical questions. And uh, following our program last week, you asked so many good questions that we just decided that what we would do this week is to answer them, answer the ones that you wrote to us all throughout the week, as well as what you're going to be texting into us tonight. And, you know, it's really important when you're talking about something new, which is the new protocol that our doctors developed for the post-vaccine syndrome. And they have learned a lot about it. They want to talk to you about furthering your knowledge about the wide variety of symptoms that they have been seeing, as well as the different, very interesting therapies that are coming up that seem to help alleviate the pain and the suffering in a lot of patients. But before we jump to that, oh, we also have two nurses who are going to be working behind the scenes, answering even more of your questions. So you can text away right now. But there is a little bit of housekeeping that I have to give you before we bring the doctors on. You know, some of you have been talking about chat. Some of you love it and you want to save it and you haven't been able to do that up until now. And some of you absolutely loathe it because you consider it just a nuisance and a terrible distraction. So listen up because we heard you and here's how to make chat work for whatever it is that you want it to do. You love it. You want to save it. Well, the good news is we've now made that possible beginning tonight when you click on chat and when you go to it, you will see where you write your notes, three little dots, you know, that says there's more. You click on those three dots and it'll say save chat. And if you click on save chat, it will save the chat for you and send it to the whatever email address you're using to sign into us. So you, you'll get it. You can save it and you won't have to worry about all those good pieces of advice going by too, too quickly for you. Now, if you hate chat, you think it's a terrible nuisance and you just want to focus on the program, cool. All you have to do is somewhere in that chat box on your screen, whichever kind of device you're using, there's a little arrow, just a little arrow that down, you click on that and somewhere in there it says close. Just click on close and it goes away and you never have to deal with chat again. You can just have the beauty of being able to listen to what is being said by the expert medical doctors who we have on this program. Okay. The other thing is if you don't want your words out there seen and chased around the internet by all kinds of people, um, you simply can write in anonymous or you don't have to write anything, you know, if you're, if you're chatting, but just put anonymous or you can change your name or whatever you want to do uh, in order to make comments. It's pretty easy to do that. And somebody on chat will probably tell you how to do that easily. We've got a lot of good people back there who use it all the time and know what they're doing. So love it, hate it. You, you, can, you can work it out. Anyway, now let's, we have our doctors on. Let's bring on Paul Merrick and Pierre Corey and introduce our special guest to tell us more about the post-vaccine syndrome and how you're working on it because you've been doing a lot of learning and I know there are good things happening. Who wants to go first? Paul? Hey, hey, Peter, how you doing? So, how you doing? This Thanks. is Dr. McCullough. Um, 
he, he's the man with the heart. He helps us with the heart. So Piers disappeared into Netherlands. So maybe what I'll do is uh, we have a tiny short little PowerPoint which answers some of the questions we got about intermittent fasting. So I'm going to just do that quickly. And then um, once I'm, I'm done that, um, we're going to ask uh, Dr. McCullough for some, um, we'll talk about some of the cardiac issues associated with the vaccine. And I believe this is great. there are just a few. Is this true, Dr. McCullough? There are a few. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm briefly going to talk about intermittent fasting. So what it is, so when you fast is any time you don't eat. Obviously, that's a fast, and you must stay hydrated with water, tea, and coffee. So if you are doing intermittent fasting, coffee is fine. So why should you fast? Um, well, you know, that we, we kind of evolved in an environment where we were hunters and gatherers, and we didn't eat all the time. So, you know, we would, you know, we would get up a meal, and then we would, we would fast, and that's the way our metabolism has evolved and it does some very important things if you fast. The first thing is it removes damaged cells called autophagy. This is a really phenomenal process where by starving, you actually, it's like doing a cell cleansing. It cleanses the cells of all the damaged protein. What it also does is it does mitophagy, which does the same thing for damaged mitochondrion. So it improves cellular function and mitochondrial function. It improves metabolism. As we'll see, it's probably the best way to cure type 2 diabetes is by fasting. It's antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and improves uh, neuronal plasticity. So it is important to speak to your doctor before you fast. So there are a few, there are a few uh, contraindications to fasting. So if you're pregnant, you should not fast. Uh, if you're uh, breastfeeding, you should not fast. If you're under the age of 18, we do not recommend fasting as the child is still growing. If you're a diabetic on medication that lowers your blood sugar, it's really important to speak to your physician before you start fasting because you need, may need to adjust your blood glucose medication. Uh, you should also speak to your, um, your physician if you have a serious underlying medical disorder, a history of e eating disorder, or if you're underweight or malnourished. Apart from these contraindications, it's, pretty, it's pretty safe to do. And in fact, it probably is the treatment of choice for type 2 diabetes. Uh, it's a very effective way of controlling, in fact, curing diabetes, but you should do this under the uh, guidance of a physician. So how to fast? So basically, you should start small and build it into a longer fasting period. So you start off slow until you get used to it. And the goal is to make this a lifelong habit. So we know that diets don't work. Diets have universally failed, and they just don't work. So basically, this is uh, about re-engineering re the way you approach food and you eat with food. And so instead of having multiple meals a day, you want to you wanna break that really bad habit. You don't need to use ketosis strips because the benefits go beyond ketosis. You want to uh, break with healthy, unprocessed whole food. So when you fast and when you're in the feeding phase, you want to eat whole processed natural food. 
Now, there's there are a number of different ways to do fasting. There's no I, there's no perfect way, and one way will suit certain patients, and another other people prefer it. So there's no ideal way, and there's no one way should be proven better than the other. One way, which is a good way to start, is the daily fasting, where you have a fast period and then an eating period during the day. The other, which we'll come to, is the 5-2 caloric restriction protocol. So this is the 18-6 time-restricted diet. So what you can see is you, and there are many ways of doing this. This is just an, exa an example. Oopsie. So what you do is you fast till about 10 a.m., then you have your eating period, and then you fast. And then you do that for a few days, and then you increase the, you increase the duration of the fasting period, you shorten the eating period. And ultimately, what you want to do is have an eating period of between um, four to six hours, and then fast the rest of the time. And you know, once you get used to this, this is not a difficult thing to do, and it can become part of your, your daily routine. And because you still are, are eating, you know, having a dinner, it doesn't disrupt uh, family routines. Doing this is to have one day a week to have a, a calorie-restricted diet, and then to increase that to two days a week, and then you increase that by decreasing the amount of calories, and then you progress by decreasing two, two days a week, decreasing the amount of calories to, to 500. The problem, this is a little bit more difficult because you have to do calorie counting and work this out. Whereas with the previous method, you just eat and you fast. Uh, it's quite simple. What I would really recommend is this book. This is The Complete Guide to Fasting by Jason Fung. It's a very easy book to read. It's very well written. It explains the, the reasons and rationale for fasting, and it provides very good recommendations, and it provides a whole host of guides in terms of um, different protocols for feeding. Uh, being for feeding and for fasting, and basically what 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 we're talking about is, you know, we we were hunters and gatherers, and we would eat episodically. Now, with ready access to food, we seem to be eating all the time, and this is metabolically a disaster for the body. It results in heart disease, diabetes, and all kinds of things. So, this is a way of reprogramming the way we eat. And it's very good for cleansing the cell um, and for autophagy. So it gets rid of all those misfolded proteins and the spike protein. So after that little story, I'm going to stop. I see Dr. Corey has magically appeared. Hi, um, Paul. And uh, would, would you introduce Dr. McCullough, who's going to talk to us about vaccine injuries? Yeah. Whose phone is that? Is that you, Paul? Hey, Peter. So, uh, Peter, we meet again. I just, uh, Peter and I were just talking for his, uh, his webinar, but uh, I think the man doesn't need much of an introduction, but, uh, you know, Peter's been, been working alongside of us uh, trying to get truth out on a number of aspects of COVID. But uh, obviously, Peter, you're one of the more accomplished cardiologists in your field. Um, and we're happy to have you uh, to help answer questions. And you're not only a cardiologist, you're also a COVID expert on multiple, multiple aspects. So we're glad to have you here.
Well, thanks for having me. As introduced, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, and I maintain my boards in internal medicine and cardiology, so I've always been broad-based. I, I practiced as an internist, uh, a rural internist, uh, a long time ago before I specialized in cardiology, so I had a prolonged uh, a training course, if you will, and I trained in public health at University of Michigan. Uh, and uh, like the other doctors on the call, I've been tackling both acute COVID and now the COVID injury. So I just finished with a COVID patient who's a doctor her, uh, herself, who's taken the vaccine and she has COVID and she's pretty convinced she has pulmonary involvement. I think she does. Uh, so we're scrambling to, uh, with the medications, you know, our, our multi-drug protocols uh, to get her going. But fortunately she's got the resources to get it all done and she'll do fine. Uh, I think without being hospitalized. Now, in terms of vaccine injuries, um, my approach has been uh, to make sure that uh, we don't have a major syndrome where something big has to happen, like surgery or uh, like uh, uh, you know very specific prescription medications for a problem. So they fall into categories. One is acute myocarditis or heart inflammation. 90% of these cases are in uh, men. The peak age is 18 to 24, but it now tails off up into the 70s and 80s. Uh, it typically occurs after shot number two of the messenger RNA vaccines. Uh, the presentation can be chest pain, shortness of breath, or generalized fever and malaise. My great concern is that we're missing many of these cases since the, the symptoms are so nonspecific. Uh, but these pa patients usually go to ERs or urgent cares. And if they have a history of physical EKG uh, and then cardiac blood testing, the blood testing to be ordered are the high sensitivity troponin, but also ordering a blood BNP, a boy, Nancy, Peter, ST2, uh, Sam, Tom, and then the number two, and then galactin three, G-A-L-E-C-T-I-N three, uh, th those th th that bucket of biomarkers have been in the 2013 guidelines for forms of cardiomyopathy, and I apply them to uh, to those with suspected uh, COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis because sometimes the presentation is late. We've actually missed the early troponin elevation phase. So, hey, hey Peter, Peter, biomarkers, yeah, real quick. Um... Flavio Cotigiani was on last week, and he was talking about in all of his patients who presented with uh, shortness of breath symptoms after vaccines, I think every MRI has been abnormal and suggestive. Of my, are you having trouble ordering MRIs? Are they being covered? Or no, I'm not having trouble ordering them, but that's consistent with the work of Jenna Schauer, and she's published two papers on this where 100% of the MRIs are abnormal in cases of suspected myocarditis. And it's real scary because I don't like that 100%. That means there's a lot yep. more people, you know, uh, that should. Now, it's very different than COVID-19 respiratory illness, where there were studies done in NCA athletes as well as the military looking for myocarditis in the athletes after uh, COVID respiratory illness. And the rate of positive MRIs was 1%, 2 or 3%. Yeah. Uh, it was very low. And so uh, we know with the, with the suspected vaccine myocarditis, it's real. But if a history and physical EKG and the biomarkers are negative and the patient really doesn't have anything on exam, I don't think we necessarily need to go further. Um, however, uh, if there's effort intolerance, uh, biomarkers are elevated. We do echocardiography because it's easy and we can quickly identify left ventricular dysfunction while we're waiting to get the MRI approved. Uh, but what you don't want to do is you don't want to miss early heart failure because those patients need 
both beta blockers and uh, what's called renin angiotensin system inhibitors, ACE inhibitors, uh, to support the ventricle so it doesn't progressively dilate. If I have a case of vaccine-induced myocarditis, my standard protocol is actually to use prednisone and colchicine. And then if there's left ventricular dysfunction, using drugs like carvedilol and entresto. And it's hard for a young person to actually take all these medicines since they're not used to taking medicines, but they need to. And sadly, I have a couple of cases now that's been over a year and the MRIs are still positive and they still have cardiac symptoms. So, I mean, it's, uh, the myocarditis, I'd say, take it seriously. Uh, the gold standard is to get an MRI. You're going to struggle with a lot of these atypical chest pain cases. And I, I think a lot of it just depends on clinical judgment, but the gold standard is an MRI. If your exam is negative EKG, everything's negative and the patient's still pushing you. If you get a negative MRI and there's no late gadolinium enhancement, uh, then I think you're done. You've effectively ruled it out. What you Good. need to know is when you get the MRIs and it is like gadolinium enhancement, you have to look at the percent, the percent of the left ventricle involved. Now, our standard for Fabry's disease and for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is more than 15% late gadolinium enhancement that persists is actually uh, an indication for an ICD or reflected the risk of sudden death is sufficiently high. You know, is there a way to prevent this happening? So someone gets their second shot and <laughs> so they want to know, is there something they can do to prevent them getting myocarditis? You know, not that I'm aware of. I've seen nice resolution of it with prompt colchicine and uh, prednisone. Uh, in the, you know, there's really only one randomized trial called the myocarditis treatment trials. It's actually headed out of, is NIH trials headed out of Dallas where I am now. And uh, the, the lead pathologist, his name is Maximilian Buha. He's actually, if any of you, you look at the uh, standard um, uh, pathology textbook, it was written where I went to medical school in, 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 in Southwestern in, in Dallas and Buha is prominently featured in it. I think it's called Robin Cotrans and Kumar. So Kumar was one of our um, pathologists there. But at any rate, um, the point is in the MITT trial, they did biopsies, and because there was such an array of, uh, of etiologies, including giant cell myocarditis and, and parvovirus, virus, what have you, that there really wasn't any clear role for corticosteroids. I feel very differently in the vaccine-induced myocarditis uh, uh, syndrome uh, in that it does appear to be steroid responsive. And uh, I use the prednisone uh, as well as the colchicine, since colchicine is a gold standard medicine we use for pericarditis. And there's almost always a continuum from the myocardium, at least to the visceral pericardium. So, uh, you know, patients could be on colchicine and prednisone for a month or two, and, uh, and we just see how they do clinically. I think at some point in time, a follow-up MRI needs to be done. And, and I'm really concerned to have people out nine months with uh, late gadolinium enhancement more than 15%, I think I'd be really worried about uh, the risk of sudden death. In the Jenna Shower paper so far, she's seen patients with positive MRIs at four and a half months at, at a mean. I think it's, I think it's worrisome. Uh, less than a 15% late gadolinium enhancement, that may be their scar that they carry for the rest of their lives. So, I mean, so the question is sudden cardiac death usually happens with exercise. You know, these young men, that are exercising. So would you suggest that people who've been vaccinated shouldn't undertake strenuous exercise for a while? You know, there's no hard and fast rules for general vaccination, uh, but it certainly would be prudent, particularly patients who have, you know, constitutional symptoms. 
for patients with myocarditis, you know, that's in our European guidelines and American guidelines. That's in our guidelines. No exercise. This is very important. No exercise. Uh, some of you have been following Fabian Schrump, who's a marathoner from Switzerland, and she is not exercising because she has myocarditis. And as Dr. Merrick points out, we're, we're at about 700 European athletes in the uh, soccer leagues where it's known that, that there's compulsory vaccination, 700 cases of sudden cardiac death, roughly 50 are, are able to be resuscitated in about 50% and 50% have died. Actually, the cause of the myocarditis. So uh, take it seriously. And I think of the, the conditions, the, the one that, you know, myocarditis needs to be diagnosed if it's there. Um, but the general things that uh, Dr. Corey and I discussed, and we won't go into it here, is the other major organ injury syndromes really depend on clinical judgment. Like, you know, severe neurologic symptoms and things on physical exam to do imaging to rule out various for forms of stroke or, or venous thrombosis within the, the, um, you know, you know, the intracranial cavity. Uh, We're having trouble with the signal. We're losing. Yeah, Peter, we lost you for a second. Um, maybe, uh, if Turn off the video so we can maybe preserve audio. So, Pierre, it seems that one of the things we're seeing in some of these. We have lost is a mega workup where there's just a million tests. And in, um, I think a lot, a lot of us, hopefully I'm back, you guys. Yeah, we got you. Well, we did for Perfect. a second. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a a lot of us would conclude uh, is we need to use our clinical judgment and the obvious clinical findings before we start ordering laboratories and lots of x-rays and other forms of imaging. Yep. You know, when I was talking with Peter on the last, uh, you know, when we, we, we did a conversation for his, um, uh, it's the McCullough report, right, uh, Peter, yeah. the radio show, right. um, you know, Peter sort of went through, you know, the, the, the defined syndromes that you'll actually see in journals and in the media, right? The, the myocarditis, the uh, cerebral sinus venous thrombosis, the, the VITT, um, you know, the, the thromboembolic syndromes. Um, but I was telling Peter, you know, when we talk about sort of our protocol, which are these more chronically ill patients without like focal organ system, like oftentimes they don't have necessarily chest pain or shortness of breath or a swollen arm um, or a headache or a focal neurological deficit uh, that's static. You know, I was telling Peter, I mean, so many of the time I'm seeing patients with really normal labs and normal EKGs, EEGs, EMGs, and, and sort of that, that's like that other kind of uh, population of patients that we're seeing. And, and that I think this, this sort of treatment guideline is, is more directed to those kind of uh, clusters of symptoms. Um, Cause you know, you, the ones you're talking about really, Peter, those are medical emergencies. I mean, th those are really yeah, severe and, and even life-threatening. Effectively when the, these other syndromes have been ruled out. Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, there's one, there's one cardiac syndrome that um, I do not think needs a lot of uh, workup and that's the posterior orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, where patients take the vaccine and their heart rate is literally reset 20 or 40 points higher, and they can have orthostatic symptoms. It all the time. 
Right. But there, outside of a, a history of physical and EKG, uh, I honestly have not found any other imaging worthwhile at all. Yeah. So I think we just use our clinical judgment. The peer, it seems to be that the patients who have myocarditis are a different subgroup of patients because it seems in these people they have the predominant features myocarditis, whereas many of the other vaccine injured have a spectrum of diseases, neuro, neurological, peripheral neuropathy, autonomic. So it seems for some reason those who have the myocarditis have kind of isolated myocarditis and maybe it's an age thing. And it's so weird, right? That like, you know, the, those syndromes, they tend to be one focal problem where that's not what we see. We see multiple organs. And so for instance, I've seen patients where they've had uh, a single problem. And when you ask them about the history for all the other things that we see in post-vaccine and they're absent, right? And so I, I don't know why that is. Like, why would a myocarditis patient not get the other clusters of symptoms well, that we because, see. Because, you know, I'm in a couple of these work groups. I'm in one of the basic work groups where um, the experts believe when they make these vaccines, you know, every messenger RNA is a little bit different than another strand. There's not much uniformity because there's a lot of opportunity for different um, base pair arrangements. And uh, there's actually insertion of human code so the ribosomes can read it. And so each person probably gets a little different injection from the next person, just the product. Not only that, but there's cooling, there's all kinds, there's multi-use vials. So the nurses are sticking a lot of needles in, there's opportunities for oxidation and changes. So, uh, so there's probably, uh, the experts believe there's a lot of variation in the products themselves. They're loaded on lipid nanoparticles and Mark Giardot uh, uh, in one of the groups from France, he believes that there's a Russian roulette that's hemodynamic. It really depends on you know, where the lipid nanoparticles by circulation end up, maybe a big uh, blush goes to the heart. Uh, you know, maybe maybe someone took a vaccine and played a soccer game later that day and they got a lot of right. cardiac flow. Or there may have been a, a big rush uh, to the uh, brain and the blood-brain barrier. So there's a stochastic, uh, you know, in Russian roulette, there's uh, six uh, uh, cylinders, uh, six uh, chambers in a right. cylinder. Uh, with with vaccine, maybe it's a hundred thousand. Maybe it's just you know the bad luck wheel just spins, and whoever gets it. But I agree with you. Those who have discrete syndromes, like the thrombotic syndrome of myocarditis, they tend not to have this diffuse syndrome, and it may have to do with hemodynamic distribution or the the kind of blend of active and relatively less active uh, messenger RNA that. That's been I mean, what you say about exercising post-vaccine makes sense. So, I mean, if you're going to, you know, increase your cardiac output, you're going to increase myocardial blood flow. So it would make sense to avoid exercising after the vaccine to, to protect your heart. I mean, ideally, you would want to go in and, you know, switch your heart off so it can rest, but you can't do that. But clearly, exercising, particularly if you're an athlete, is just going to... Um, you know, redistribute blood flow to the heart. So maybe that's a reason. Well, you know, it's an interesting observation. Two notes. Uh, University of Michigan Wolverines, in preparation for their dreaded game against the Georgia Bulldogs this year, they forced all the players to take boosters uh, just a few days before the game. And being a, yeah, being a University of Michigan alumni, of course, I blame the boosters instead of uh, – Harbaugh and the team, others have, have roundly criticized me for that excuse, but you can't vaccinate your football team, expect them to do well 
uh, three days later. Um, you know, there are studies done in animals with other forms of viral myocarditis, and it turns out that exercise makes it worse, particularly during the febrile phase of things. So uh, I like what I'm hearing here, that maybe after people take the vaccine, it's prudent uh, to avoid aerobic exercise, uh, you know, and, and sports-related exercise for a period of time. Well, and tell that to a professional athlete. I mean, this is... Well, Betsy, it's a life or death issue. Life or death issue. Yeah, yeah. I think they're going to be forced to be vaccinated. There are things you can do to limit, I mean, obviously don't get them, but things you, you can do. Obviously, I think exercising is really a bad thing. I actually read a paper that suggests that zinc deficiency or low zinc may predispose to vaccine injury and then taking zinc may be, you know, may be beneficial, um, which is a simple thing to do. So, you know, we need to, to figure out ways to minimize the risk of um, toxicity from these, these vaccines. Do you have time for questions, folks? Because boy, we have them. And, yeah, and they, let's take questions. I just wanted to say those words about the cardiac syndromes, but let's take questions. It's really good to hear them. And let, let me give you one that's directed at you. Um, here is from uh, a gentleman named Fagan. He says, can an older adult get cardiac symptoms or involvement after a recent COVID infection while also being 15 months post-vaccination? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. There's a paper by Xi and colleagues from the VA that's very worrisome. You know, COVID, the respiratory infection, can clearly set up the body for a cardiovascular event, like a heart attack or a stroke. There's no doubt about it. Uh, most of that risk is on inpatients. People are sick enough to be hospitalized with COVID. And then in the convalescent phase at home, they have a cardiovascular event. And when we take the vaccine on top of that, the risk is even super loaded. And it's been my experience that in fact that happens. So basically that's really a good question. So you can have somebody who's been vaccinated um, and you know, reasonably asymptomatic then gets a COVID infection and the super added COVID infection on top of the vaccine results in this spike overload and it tends to cause a severe syndrome. So whether this is long COVID or, or, or post-vaccine, we could argue, but it's probably post-vaccine that the, the uh, you know, super added COVID infection triggers this, um, this immune response that was perhaps brewing. I know clinically I've seen provoked myocardial infarction, stroke, and pulmonary embolism in that, in those scenarios. Ooh. Well, we have, let's uh, get one in the, um, Neurocognitive area now. We have a question from Sophie Bouchia Olson who says, my mother is 79. She received three doses of the Pfizer mRNA vaccine last year. Two weeks after receiving the first booster, she had to be rushed to the emergency room for severe neurocognitive troubles, which included paranoia and visual hallucinations. Before this hospitalization, she was relatively healthy and was living by herself. She has been recently diagnosed with Lewy body dementia and is not doing well. Any suggestions of treatments for her disease? Do you think ivermectin might also help? Also, could her recent diagnosis of Lewy body dementia be related to the vaccine? 
So you know, you want to answer that one because you know it's a, it's a good it's a good question, and there's no from my perspective there's no doubt that this patient's neurological syndrome is due to the vaccine. The vaccines through multiple mechanisms cause severe neuropathology, and it does in one of the ways it causes an Alzheimer's-like disease. Apart from the neuroinflammation, apart from the microvascular disease, apart from the clotting, apart from the autoimmune brain disease, you name it, these vaccines basically will do a bad number on the brain. Paul, Paul, let alone the fact, since when is Lewy body dementia an acute illness? It is not, right? We heard of a case earlier today. I don't know if it's the same case, but it's certainly strikingly similar to uh, someone who reached out to us for advice, but it was the exact same syndrome. It was someone after a vaccine who had acute sort of, um, uh, I think, hallucinations and, and or paranoia, who was also given the diagnosis of Lewy body, but they were cognitively intact and fully functional prior to the vaccine. Lewy body does not occur in two weeks. So first of all, that, that diagnosis is garbage, Paul. That's right. That's number one. And I agree with you. It's the vaccine. The, the second thing that we know is all of these varied symptomatology of the nervous system, right? Whether it's disorders of perception or peripheral sensory abnormalities or motor dysfunction, we, we know that there's inflammation going on in the brain and or in the peripheral nerves. And clearly this person is suffering some sort of inflammatory insult to the brain, whether it's the lipid nanoparticle uh, or autoimmunity, but, um, but this is all cute and, and temporally associated. And so what treatments would we do? Again, this is trial and error, but um, things like ivermectin, right? So for a number of reasons, it, it binds to the spike, it has anti-inflammatory properties. Um, we've, I've had, I've heard of similar cases. We have a colleague who used valproic acid. Valproic acid is a, a long time, uh, anti-seizure medicine. It has anti-thrombotic, um, anti-platelet, uh, activity as well as anti-inflammatory activity. And, and he, had, he treated an acute sort of, um, uh, psychotic uh, break from someone after a vaccine with it, with, with some, uh, some uh, effect. Now, the thing though, Paul, is that we have to remember, right? These cases that are being presented to us, we're getting one little thing. I'm not giving specific medical advice, but these are the, just some of the things that I would think of in this case. I and mean, this is clearly, like Paul said, an acute response to the vaccine and what that mechanism is that's triggering it and exactly how to counteract it um, you know, that person needs a doctor who understands the spike protein as a pathogen, the mechanisms that it unleashes, and can sort of work at trying to counteract those. Yeah, I mean, these patients need treatment. Just to say they have some kind of a dementia is, is a cop-out. I mean, this is acute vaccine-induced injury, and it, it, it demands acute treatment. Now, there's no single magic bullet. I think it, as you said, requires a multimodal approach, a number of different drugs and therapies to decrease the brain inflammation, improve cerebral blood flow, um, reduce the inflammation. But Peter, Peter and Paul, you know, again, I don't want to always sound like the rock thrower and, and criticizing, but you know, one of the things that's so great, right, with this this new protocol and Paul's document where he's really reviewed the literature and kind of tried to sort of put what we know about the mechanisms and, and what potential therapies are, is that the doctors within the system, 
they don't understand the spike protein as a pathogen and or the, 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 the pathophysiologic mechanisms that it unleashes. So when you have patients presenting with new onset illnesses and diseases and symptomatology, if they don't recognize that this is, I guess a better term, spikeopathy, right? Spike protein mediated disease. How could they know what to do? Well, so they come up thing, with I, weird diagnoses and, and no treatments. I had a patient last week, she had a, a difficult neurologic syndrome after the vaccine. She had seen 17 doctors, including doctors at the Mayo Clinic. Of and course. the doctors, none of them knew what she had. She was a complete enigma, but they knew one thing. It wasn't due to the vaccine. They didn't know what she had. So let me just say words about, um, about Louis de about dementia. So Louis de dementia, the natural history disease, it's kind of about a two-year disease. It, yeah. has a, it has a mix of both Parkinson's and advanced dementia. So it's kind of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's blended together. About 80 to 90% of people have hallucinations. That's a hallmark of it. Um, it, there is another hallmark and that's severe neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. And the go-to drug for real severe NOH is droxydopa. And I use that in my practice. It's a wonderful drug. It's a FDA approved for that application, actually NOH. And it's taken three times a day and it's way better than uh, metodrin or other things we can use uh, a food to cortisone. So I like to use it there. I've had some of these cerebral and cerebellar. Wait, wait, Peter, hold on. Because you brought up droxydopa and I've never heard of it and we see so much POTS. Have you used that outside of Lewy body with neurogenic orthostatic hypertension or no, just in that indication? I, I think the drug to use for uh, POTS is the same drug. Uh, there's actually a drug that's uh, the guidelines um, drug that uh, um that's the guidelines indicated drug from Amgen that we actually can prescribe for heart failure, but it's better for POTS. And I'm blanking on the name right now. Maybe somebody can help me with it. But no, it's a different drug that we would use if we're prescribing. But getting back to Lewy body, um, so it'd be droxydopa, things to treat Parkinson's and things to manage the hallucinations. My experience with the vaccine-induced cerebral and cerebral syndromes is, believe it or not, they may last six or nine months, but they get better. That's the difference. Um, uh, the... Um, the, the, the uh, Lewy body is almost always fatal. It's it progressive and fatal. Yeah, progressive and fatal. The, the vaccine ones, I've seen a couple of them so far, and I'm hopeful if they don't take any more shots that the body ultimately can, can manage it because it's a different pathogenesis. We have a comment from another cardiologist that you might find interesting. Michael Goodkin says, I'm a cardiologist. Normally, Michael. <laughs> we say a big hello to Michael. Okay. Big, big and uh, and collaborator and supporter of our efforts. So thanks, Michael. Well, he says, uh, normally with myocarditis, there is much more subclinical myocarditis than symptomatic myocarditis. Those athletes in general were asymptomatic before they died suddenly. We have no idea how much silent myocarditis there is. Cardiac MRI would be needed to test for it. We should screen a hundred consecutive vaccinated male patients at three months to look for it. That's an excellent suggestion. For instance, and I don't want to be cavalier about this, but if I was the owner of a professional team, any athletic sport, and they all been vaccinated, wouldn't you think it might be prudent to MRI all of them before you well, put it, them back on the field or put them through training? Well, it's interesting. The NCAA did that in hundreds and hundreds with the respiratory infection. So did the military. 
and they didn't find it. But now with the vaccines, they're not doing the same protocols. So, Pierre, you know what? If I had a football team, it's the answer is simple. Don't vaccinate these people. Well, there's why, that. You know, why, sure. would you, why would you purposely give them a toxic protein that's going to cause all these things? And I think the, the cardiologist's question is right that there are many patients who have subclinical, you know, myocarditis. And, and that's what's the scary thing is because they may be, you know, asymptomatic. They then exercise and then they have an arrhythmia and drop dead. It's like a ticking time bomb. I mean, I mean, to, to suddenly fall ill and collapse on the field. And I mean, the last I saw a couple of months ago there, I know there has been a few people who followed that, the, 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 the frequency and incidence of these sudden cardiac arrests on the field. And as of two months ago, I don't know what the latest is, Peter, but it was up to 900 professional, mostly footballers, soccer players, right, uh, around the world in, in various professional leagues that had collapsed on the field. Right. So people have asked, how come we're not seeing our U.S. athletes yeah. die? like that. And I learned a little bit with the case of Aaron Rodgers, who texted me uh, later on, that um, it turns out that the, a lot of the American players with their agents, that they actually have a, a, a form of non-disclosure where they cannot take the vaccine, but they don't have to disclose their status. Really? Wow. It may be. Really? Yeah. And the Europeans don't have that. So it may be that a lot of American players have not taken the vax. And they're just being quiet because I asked Aaron, I said, how does this work out? I mean, I, you know, you look like, you know, you were kind of going like everyone looked like you took the vax. And he says, well, you know, there, there was a way of, in a sense, kind of getting out of it and, um, and wow. just being quiet about it. Wow. Well, well I, I just want to bring attention to one of my favorite athletes, which is Novak Djokovic. Right. Remember what he went through. I mean, he was the one guy who understood it was so bad for his health. He did not. I mean, this is a guy who's, you know, developed his body and is at the peak of fitness of almost any athlete in the world. And and what he had to do in order to protect himself from the vaccine was absolutely unconscionable. Well, look at Kyrie Irving, Jonathan Isaac, Cole yep. Beasley, Aaron Rodgers. Um, uh, you, you know, they have, uh, you know, made the, the case that they're prioritizing their health over their, their player status. And look at, look at Deion Sanders uh, and others who have gone down this pathway, multiple amputations of femoral artery uh, thrombi, all the sudden deaths. Fabian Trump, who's got myocarditis. Uh, Nellie Corda, which almost certainly has an arm thrombosis and thoracic outlet obstruction syndrome. She's the female golfer. We need to bring up these examples because we need relatedness, meaning if we can talk about objective examples to what other people can see, they can understand it. Otherwise, to our patients, if it doesn't happen to them or anybody in their circle, they can't really understand that it's happening. I think part of the problem is doctors don't want to ask patients where they vaccinated mm -hmm. if there was a temporal association between their symptoms and vaccination. They just don't ask them. So if you go to the ED complaining of shortness of breath or whatever, they're not going to ask you, when were you vaccinated? It's just what they do. They don't want to ask that question. And even when the patients come in and say, I took the vaccine, I'm short in the breath. Um, my experience is the doctors uniformly deny the association, even when it's blatantly. There's honest. no question. Peter, you know, when we talked in the last hour um, about those, um, one of the acute reactions to the vaccine, which, which is these spikes in high blood pressure, I will tell you that I've talked to a number of people um, who have gone to the emergency room. One, one young man, I met him at a, at a symposium that, that we were part of. He said he was in the emergency room. 
and no history of hypertension, had been having headaches and different uh, odd symptoms, was found to have, I don't know, I think a systolic was 190 or something. And the emergency room staff said, oh yeah, another one with high blood pressure. And while he was there, there was someone on the other side of the wall, same thing, new onset hypertension, young person in their forties, you know, and the ER staff they are seeing this all the time. They're seeing people come in with no history of hypertension, young, right? Not outside, you know, outside the ages where you see essential hypertension developing. The ERs know this. The doctors are seeing this. They, yeah, they you know, the, know the theory is that, again, the Russian roulette there, these lipid nanoparticles that, that do concentrate in the adrenal glands, they probably also land in the sympathetic chain. There probably actually is uh, a significant uh, release of catecholamines, you know, our vasoactive catecholamines, dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine uh, circulatory are probably higher. I've seen this. I mean, Peter, you like Fl Flavio's paper is pretty magnificent. I yeah, mean, the way he puts that theory together and, and all of the pathophysiological support for it, I, I was pretty, I, I was really moved by that paper. Right. And the go-to drugs here, instead of ACE inhibitors and diuretics are actually beta blockers. And I think, you know, I think that pathophysiology is there. The or maybe even quantity. Yeah, the paper that was published in Hypertension of Vaccinated People Developing Hypertensive Urgencies, uh, I think is it was really strong, and that came out over a year ago. It's clearly related to intracranial hemorrhage. What you need to know, now there's a, a, a study done and published in Circulation, I was one of the authors uh, before COVID, it's called the Hyperstat study, where uh, we looked at people who had hypertension that went to the ER. That's significant. And what I learned from that is in the next 30 days, there's about a 30% chance of death, heart failure, uh, stroke, or renal failure. So when someone actually has a hypertensive urgency, they go to the ER, you really need to see them in the office and get this under control because you know that they're announcing a high risk scenario. Wow. Let's move into another area of interest with the vaccines. Cheryl uh, Lynn Galimo says, is there a is there data regarding a correlation between the COVID-19 vaccines and an increase in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Well, I mean, I don't think we have... What we do I know, know, what we do we, know... We don't have specific quantitative associations with a single cancer. But I, I will tell you that uh, Ryan Cole has seen, you know, he's mostly called out endometrial cancers, um, but I will tell you, I've talked to a number of nurses, physicians on the inside, the general, the, the general impression for those who are willing to talk about it is there is an increased incidence of a number of cancers in a lot of weird ages. When I say weird, atypical, younger patients with rarer cancers at a frequency that has not been seen before. And so any association with, and, and there's clear mechanistic reasons for why you would see more cancers after these vaccines for its effects on the immune system. Um, I, I don't know specifically with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but I would say yes, just automatically. Unless, Paul, do you have an association? I would agree. I think across the board, it increases the risk of cancers across the board. And there's there's really good mechanistic data to explain why it increases the risk. So I think it increases the risk of cancer. And as you say, it's often atypical. It's much more aggressive. It's younger people. 
And what also seems to happen is people who, who had cancer that was in remission get the vaccine. Oh, yes. Suddenly they have uncontrolled malignancy. So there's no, there's no question that this vaccine causes cancer. What can one say? Yeah, just to, just to put some citations here, a paper by Singh and colleagues from University of Pittsburgh showed that the S2 segment of the spike protein interferes with the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the uh, P53 gene and the BRCA, yep. or BRCA gene. Those are tumor suppressor genes. So uh, in solid organ tumors, for instance, uh, renal cancer, for instance, I've seen this in my practice after vaccination. That's the P53 governed vaccine. Uh, female breast and urogenital cancers is a BRCA uh, governed. Uh, so the pathophysiology is there. The other thing to discuss is what's called lymphomatous reaction. So when there's a, a shot in the deltoid, the lymph nodes become inflamed all over and it can involve the neck and be very difficult to try to, you're wondering if it's a lymphoma or not. Actually, Joe Rogan just texted me this scenario the other day of someone, uh, a podcaster, I guess, who had this. And the key is once it persists for, for several months, you have to be concerned. In this case, was a T-cell lymphoma. And you have to be concerned that's the case. My co-author of my book, uh, Courage to Face COVID-19, of which Dr. Merrick and Dr. Corey are prominently uh, in there. And FLCC has a whole chapter. Um, the co-author, John Leake, his ex-girlfriend over in England, a young girl, takes the vaccine. She has a lymphomatous reaction involving the, the axilla and the uh, deltoid and the neck. And it becomes so aggressive, they actually have to like air flight her in to a bigger hospital in London and it keeps going and going and it actually crushes her carotid artery and she has a stroke because of this. She sees a ton of doctors over there, St. Mary's Hospital, all these great hospitals in England and they do biopsies and it's just this lymphomous reaction. And they told her, we don't know what you have, but we're sure of one thing. It's not due to the vaccine. Of course. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. really believe, Peter, that's going to stop. I, I, I think there's going to be a watershed moment. They, they, they have to stop doing that. And I, I think you cannot ignore something when it's this calamitous, this much of a like an epidemic level. It, it's got to turn. Everybody knows somebody who's been injured, yes. or died. It, that's how common it is. It is so common in our circles. Ryan Cole and I were in a car going across Florida and we decided to get a cup of coffee. We stopped there. These two girls came in they recognized us. They wanted pictures. And one of them said, I have to tell you my story. Yep. About six months ago, I took my father in because he was in a nursing home. I took him in to get his vaccine. And he took his vaccine, and as I was driving him back, he died in the passenger seat right there. So I'm telling you, these vignettes are everywhere. They're touching everybody in our circles. That's how common it is. Joe Rogan asked me. Joe Rogan asked me a question: If these vaccines are so dangerous, how come not everybody's having side effects? And I said, Well, there's side effects. We're hoping they would be in a smaller number of people. But the point is. Uh, uh, we've never seen a product like this loaded with these types of dangers. But they're still safe and effective. Have I not, uh, Dr. McCulloch? Isn't that what we told? Well, they were assumed to be safe and effective. And in fact, to this day, someone showed me in Texas, one of our grocery stores is Albertsons. And it says, get vaccinated. They're safe and effective. And if you do, you're getting 10% off your groceries. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. 
Um, Endless. Karen Harsh wants to know, is there a length of time after a patient's last vaccine was given that they can stop worrying about any symptoms being vaccine related? I, you, you know, I have thoughts that's on that. That's a really good question. So that's a good question. And we don't know, but what can happen actually is that, you know, we know the spike protein hangs around for a long time and it, it you know, maybe even a year. So what can happen is, is that particularly if you get COVID again, so if you've been vaccinated, then have a mild COVID infection, it can cause a catastrophic syndrome. So I don't think you're ever out of the woods. It seems though that most people who have a you know, serious vaccine injury do so within weeks of the vaccine. But I think yeah. it doesn't protect you forever. We know in terms of sudden death, it's usually when Dr. McCulloch will, will agree, it's usually within the first four or five days that the sudden cardiac death. And it seems that most, you know, speaking to the vaccine injured who develop these neurological and neuropsychiatric, it's usually within two weeks of the vaccine. But the problem is, is that if you have a, if you've been vaccinated and then you get COVID, it just sets you up for a really bad physiological response. So unfortunately, you know, you kind of screwed if you've been vaccinated. And I, I, I agree with everything Paul said. At the same time, I just want to soften it a little bit. that Because you, you don't want to cause undue worry. I, I mean, I agree we don't know everything. But what Paul said is really important. Most vaccine syndromes or injury are temporally associated. You can date it to that period after vaccination, that window is probably four weeks. The cancers are weird, right? So cancers that are appearing a little bit later, it's hard to disassociate them uh, from the vaccine. But the, the acute stuff and, and the things that we see generally start within weeks of the vaccine. And so let's say you've had a vaccine last year, or you got two shots, you're up for your booster, you haven't had no problems in six months. You know, and then going back to what Peter was talking about before, which is that lot variability, right? All of the variation in quality control around what's in the vaccines and the, the concentrations of lipid nanoparticles. Let's just say that you got uh, a lot that was not associated with a lot, a lot of toxicity. You weathered it well, and it's been some time. I think you're largely free from a lot of worry. Um, I, again, I don't think we can remove all the worry, but at the same time, right, guys, I, I don't want to like say like everyone who's gotten a vaccine is in danger of, you know, should be worrying about a ticking time bomb. I, mean, I think that, that you well, know, here's, we have a good question on this right now. Matt White wants to know, here's his story. I was vaccinated in March and April of 2021 and had a significant acute reaction with golf ball size welts across my back with IV and oral steroids and pepsid. They resolved in about a week, but I had persistent balance and depth perception issues for three to four months and then fatigue. Eventually everything went away. My question is, should I still be worried now or has the risk passed 13 plus months later? I want to say that the human body is a wonderful thing, right? The human body, like, I think it's met its match in these vaccines, but it can still, you know, notch up some W's. So I don't know what you were going to say, Peter, but 
you know, uh, listen, I was we know the human that, body has this. Say that, that God prevails, that the yes. human body is a wonderful <laughs> gift from God. And, and uh, we have no. so many repair mechanisms and ability. And so what I'm hearing is a story of someone who was sick from the vaccine and who has healed and is largely free of symptoms. And I wish that were everyone's story. Let me give some regulatory standards. So this is important. So uh, because these emergency use authorized, technically they're still under research. Anything that happens with 30, within 30 days from a regulatory perspective is considered due to the vaccines, period. No causality assessment. It's in 30 days. You're talking about the old days, Peter, the old days. No, but I'm saying, but, but, but th this, is, this is legit. Now, for vaccines that are live attenuated, uh, antigen-based vaccines, and then, um, yeah, and basically, uh, and killed vaccines, the regulatory window of concern is two years if something pops up, okay? Mm -hmm. For gene transfer technology, of which we use, by the way, in cardiology, we use pateristan, we now have Inclenzoran, we used to use Mipamersin, so we do use some of these, our small interfering RNAs. The regulatory window of interest is five years, five years. Wow. I agree with Dr. Corey. I'm following my patients carefully on this. I think when you get beyond a year and nothing's happened, honestly, I think you're out of the woods. It's my clinical impression right now. And so I think I, I, I don't want to create, you know, 80% of Americans have taken these now. We can't have people looking in the rear view mirror, provided they don't take any more. I think they're going to be fine. That's my clinical judgment. So I think the point is don't get a booster because that <laughs> makes it worse. So I think obviously the longer you are, the better you are. Don't get a booster. Try avoid getting COVID. If you do get COVID, treat it early. Um, and you probably will do okay. And obviously, you know, you know, intermittent fasting will help cleanse the body, take a healthy diet, make sure you're taking your vitamin C. So I think they're proactive things you can do to improve your immune system. You know, we have questions from- Hey, Betsy, several. real quick. I just, yeah. Not that I'm up the most important, but I'm going to leave in about uh, seven okay. or eight minutes. I'm, I'm in, my, in Manhattan, my parents' apartment. They're waiting to eat dinner. It's eight o'clock, so I can't overstay. You um, have to go. Okay. Uh, the other, do you do not, see, can uh, you stay on for a little bit or do we, we have to wrap it up? Uh, Cause it's, on, now, you, yeah, it's eight see some, can you guys see who, which one am I? Oh, it's a, we're seeing see a lot of reflection. That's, unfortunately. You see a, a little boy wearing a dress. <laughs> that would be me and my brothers. Anyway, Aww. too much reflection. Aww. Well, enjoy the time with your parents. Okay, so some people are really concerned about, um, is it safe for a person who was not vaccinated to have intimate relations with someone who was vaccinated and boosted? And we've got another question from grandparents who are concerned about the grandchildren who have already been given the shots. And they would like to know, are they likely to have trouble from having transmission from the children and getting the spike protein? Yeah. What, so, what's the story? Do you want to answer this question? See what I, I, was, I thought Pierre ought to take this one. No, but you know what's funny is I have an answer, but I actually wanted to, because I have some thoughts on, this is a this shedding is question. question about right? shedding. Okay. And I like how they're both sending it to me. <laughs> so, so um, 
I don't know if I'm alone in this group, but I, I, I do feel that uh, shedding is a clinical phenomenon. I, I've been pretty satisfied uh, being involved and in talking to a number of folks who have gotten symptoms after ex- close physical exposure to someone generally recently vac- vaccinated, but not always. The thing that I can't figure out is why it's not more common. I think it is some people uh, who are capable of shedding to those around. I don't think it's everybody. Um, And I think it has to cause symptoms. So I wouldn't worry about someone that you've been around, whether they're vaccinated or not. And if you have not felt untoward or any other symptoms, I think it's quite rare but I do believe it happens. And the, the, the thing, the, the, the support for that is that we know that in the original Pfizer exclusion criteria, there was um, an indication that they didn't want people to be vaccinated that were around others who were vaccinated. And so there, there was a, a theoretical worry of some sort of transmission of the vaccine. And I, I've just been involved in too many cases where people clearly had temporal associations with exposures to the vaccinated. I do think it's rare and I don't want to scaremonger with this because I, I have seen people go there. They, they feel like they can't be around anyone vaccinated. Um, and I haven't seen anyone get terribly sick, although they have had, um, you know, non-ignorable symptoms. Um, yeah. I don't know, Peter. Peter, have you had experience with this? You know, for a while, I was chief of cardiology at the University of Missouri, and that's the show me state. So I said, listen, for shedding, I want somebody to show me. And the one thing I've seen that I've been shown is there was a young guy, he got the vax, girlfriend didn't, and they're young, and they did have, you know, contact of the closest type. And then about Three or four or five days later, she developed shingles on her back. Hmm. And it's like, you know, when do you see that in a young person in their 30s? You just don't, a healthy person. You just don't see it. And it was so tough. That's the only thing I've seen. I've heard a litany of other things, um, uh, uh, including, you know, changes in menstruation. That's what I've seen the most. I've seen that the most is that women have complained about exposures and then had to start. And, and what I found most credible is that the women that I, uh, I talked to, they, they found it so abnormal because they had been so regular for so many years. Right. So and they know they themselves. Abnormalities. The, the, the most scary thing I've heard, I've never been able to validate is a, is a college dorm scenario where uh, I think the boys were living in a four room, uh, uh, you know, setup, And I think, you know, two of the boys got vaxxed. The other two didn't. They all get COVID together, and the kids who didn't get vaxxed, one of them develops a, a, like a pulmonary embolism. And the thought is that maybe it's just this hyperexposure to the spike protein, or who knows, maybe he had factor five lighting or what have you. There is a concern, though, that you know, shedding on top of highly prevalent COVID, there's a lot of spike protein exposure. So can I ask you, where's the shedding happening? Is it through the skin? Is it through bodily secretions? No, it's, it's through exosomes. And uh, Stephanie Sanoff and others have worked on this. Uh, it, it Banzel showed it's little phospholipid layers. So spike protein, the body knows the spike protein is bad. And the body is trying to insulate it in these little packets. And that was a question I got from Dan Bongino one time. He asked a really good question. He goes, why does the immunity fade away after a few months, but you still get all the side effects for longer than that? And yeah. the answer is because I think because of these phospholipid packets, in a sense, 
make the spike protein kind of immunologically silent, but it's still able to move into interstitial spaces and move into other places and adjacent to blood vessels and actually promote thrombosis and promote other problems. The exosomes have clearly been shown that they can be exhaled or they can come out in saliva or, or at least in droplets, probably just even in aerosolized. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one, one of the most, the more convincing and more dramatic uh, episodes or cases that I heard of was actually a woman who wasn't vaccinated, um, who made a living cleaning condos. She, she lived in Maui and she'd been, she had a service where she cleaned condos for 10 years. And she found that after the vaccinations rolled out within six months, she actually gave up her her service. She could no longer clean uh, these, these people's condos. Everybody in Maui had to be vaccinated. And she felt that every time she cleaned a condo, she was getting sick. She had a lot, she had actually some uh, neuropathic symptoms. She felt ill. She had, she just could not go into these condos anymore. So there's clearly something in the secretions and or fluids uh, that was making her ill. Well, there's only two papers on shedding. One is by Stephanie Senup, which is a theoretical paper. There's a paper by Banzel and colleagues showing the, um, the exosomes. And then there's a third paper, and I'm uh, missing the first author that's supposed to be the first shedding paper. And it's a very complicated paper trying to you know, evaluate these exposures. And believe it or not, they were measuring secretory IgA uh, against the spike protein and tried to make the the inference that in fact it was shedding uh, without having the true viral um, uh, infection. Uh, I haven't been convinced and I am a little bit worried, you know, we're more than a year into this and there hasn't been any papers. It's a big literature out there. People are interested in this. I think if it was really possible, we, we would have had a flurry of papers, even though, though there's a suppression out there uh, in the literature, corruption in the literature, I think some still would have gotten through. There are a lot of questions about which vaccine is, is, is safer than the others, um, whether you know, whether the side yeah, effects. So the safest vaccine is placebo. If you get placebo, that's the safest vaccine. Hey, Paul, I'm going to send you one more uh, childhood picture. Who's oh, that handsome young man? Look at the hair. Look at all that hair. Look at that hair, huh? Oh my yes, yeah. gorgeous. <laughs> well, you know, I get that question all the time. What's the safest vaccine? Uh, this idea that, you know, I need to take a shot to keep my precious job, uh, despite having the, 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 the most constrained job market in, in history. And with so many young people dying of the vaccine, there are jobs all over the place. You know, working age mortality is skyrocketing. So usually I tell people, listen, find a better job uh, as opposed to try to find the least safe vaccine. But in places like Australia, uh, Canada, elsewhere, there's really no choice. So we've been following the Novavax story, which is the purified antigen-based vaccine. Apparently, it's scheduled for up for approval June 7th. I've just heard this recently. So this U.S. approval after all this time period, uh, we're hoping you know, they, you know, they went forward with a five microgram dose. They had tested 25 and five. Uh, it created a more of a sore arm than Pfizer Moderna, but looked like it was relatively free of the systemic side effects later on. In the registrational trials, which are now you know nearly a year old in terms of their publication, Peter, but it's still a coronavirus. Uh, I, I, it I know. rapidly mutates. I mean, uh, no, no way. I know. I, I know. Yeah. So uh, what I'm saying is, Novavax clearly is obsolete, and the Novavax uh, team announced that. You know, remember when the virus mutated? Novavax was the first to say we got to make a new vaccine. But people people are asking this question are not asking the asking the question about protection. 
Uh, they right, know the vaccines right. don't work. They're asking about, can they keep their job and still take a vaccine? That's the question on the table. It's and what I'm, what I'm telling you is that there's been a real lack of comprehensive safety information on Novavax. And so all we have is the sporadic reports from the EU and Australia. And unfortunately, they're not good. And so um, it's hard to navigate here. My gut tells me there's is probably safer than the other vaccines, right. but, but far, far from being as safe as a tetanus shot. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about- Hey guys, I gotta go, I'm sorry. Yeah, have dinner. Dinner. Thanks, Peter. Thanks have, for joining us. Have, have dinner with mommy and daddy. This is just yes. yeah, thank you, Paul. Great to see you, Peter. <laughs> hey, Peter, we often get the question about blood transfusion because theoretically, if you're vaccinated, you may have circulating spike, um, which would seem reasonable. The problem is I don't think the blood bank actually records whether you're vaccinated or not, and I don't think you can request blood from an unvaccinated person. Is that correct? That's true. When this, uh, we, I got called on a weekend last uh, year, early in the tra- in the uh, vaccine program, about a transfusion reaction at my hospital, patient had cardiac surgery, and I was asked, could they have gotten uh, blood from a vaccinated person? We looked into it, and sure enough, somebody could take the vaccine and turn around and give blood the next day, and theoretically, uh, lipid nanoparticles and certainly spike protein could be in the blood. And then the paper by Elena Gatta from Harvard showed that on average, there's measurable circulatory spike protein, which in, invariably with an early assay, it means a lot of it uh, for, for 14 days, but one person was circulatory for 29 days. So uh, myself and several pathologists wrote letters to the Association of American uh, Clinical Blood Banking, as well as American Red Cross and Carter Blood Center and others, and said, listen, we're afraid the blood supply is contaminated based on what we know. And so we got months later, we got these very nice letters back saying, uh, we recognize your concerns. And that was it. No, no action was taken. And then we got some experts involved, particularly on cryoprecipitate and some of these concentrated uh, products. And we understood that the seroprevalence of what of antibodies to the spike protein and the nucleocapsid of what they're seeing is about 90%. So the point is, there's probably enough circulating antibodies to actually mop up the spike protein. And then, you know, even with a set, of, even with packed whole blood, you don't get that much antibody exposure. It would really be with fresh frozen plasma, cryoprecipitate, and some of these other products. So for, at that point in time, we, we literally just dropped it because no one else was gonna pursue it. Um, the the, the uh, blood banks actually check for nine different diseases. And I think one of the things they should, they should have always been checking for is for spike protein, but they, they don't do it. They, they still are going to check for a babesiosis, but they're not going to check for significant spike contamination in the red yeah, blood. I mean, they should at least ask the donor about vaccination when they were vaccinated. And yeah, you, it, you, it, you it, that's just good medical practice. And as you say, since the spike is circulating for at least two weeks, they should have a policy. You can't donate blood if you've been recently vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, I'd say four weeks on that. People have asked me, you know, well-intentioned people say, listen, I have a church blood drive and I just got vaccinated. I said, listen, wait a month based on the Ogata paper. And, uh, you know, they ask, you know, have you had uh, sex with somebody from Africa or a drug abuser when you donate blood? Anyway, they ask a lot of questions. I agree with Dr. Merrick. A prudent question would be, did you actually take a COVID vaccine within a month? And, and I think a prudent advice would be at least like for these other blood exposures, at least a month 
before you donate blood. Wow. Wow. I, last question. This is kind of a different approach, but uh, Nancy Tovar says, after taking my first booster, Moderna, I started having full-blown panic attacks and anxiety that is keeping me from getting out and living life. They did not have the booster ready when I went in, so they gave me a full Moderna dose. Two of my healthcare providers have said these attacks have come from the vaccine. Have you seen or heard this in anyone else? So I would say yes, it's probably, you know, we, we see all of these neurological and neuropsychiatric problems post-vaccination. So I would say it's, it's likely related to the booster. Would you agree, Dr. McCullough? I would agree. I'm just, I'm just fact-checking myself here. I think the Moderna booster is still the same dose as the first two shots, yes. which, is, which is 100 micrograms of messenger RNA. Remember, Pfizer is 30 micrograms of messenger RNA. In the published studies, if you look at any side effect like myocarditis, in any head-to-head -head comparative analysis, Moderna is more loaded with adverse events than Pfizer, and probably a lot of it's dose-related. That Moderna is is uh, three times uh, the dose, and uh, you know one of the things of interest for Pfizer and Moderna in their biological licensing agreements before they get fully approved, they have to agree to do prospective studies on problems like myocarditis and actually actually screen a lot of people. Just like one of the um, uh, viewers had a great idea of doing like a hundred patients and and screening for myocarditis. That's actually in the biological licensing agreement for Moderna and Pfizer. So to move forward, they actually have to do those studies. Well, it's good to know. Maybe there will be some more information and some data out there. So, well, doctors, thank you. Thank you for staying you. on. Uh, we have a, many more questions. We'll have to do this again. Peter McCullough, thank you for being with us. I uh, hope we can get you back again. And uh, Paul, as always, uh, you're doing marvelous things with updating our protocols. I know it's, it's working hard. And uh, thank you, thank you. And thank you for all the viewers. I've got just a few things to, uh, to share with you Don't, before, you, before you leave. First, we have two nurses who have been answering even more questions behind the scenes. Can we see our, uh, our nurses, Samantha Hanks, Scott Rogers, our RNs there, at least give a wave. Uh, you've been answering probably the hundreds that we couldn't get on. There, Scott. How, how busy have you been tonight? How many questions did you get? Do you know? Either one of you, if you're, if you're unmuted uh, and can tell us, or maybe it's hard to tell the numbers. Christina usually does that, and she's away this week. Anyway, we thank you so much for all that you have been doing. Now then, I do have a few other things that are important to just tell you folks out there. Um, registration. Some of you wanted to know about, do you need to keep re-registering? And the answer is no. Uh, once you are part of this group, your link stays the same. And it's just personalized to you. All you need to do is just copy the link and use it next week. Zoom is going to remind you every week. You just click the link and that's it. You don't have to sign up again and again and again and again. We've got to. We're delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much. The next thing many of you have asked about, Jackie Stone, Dr. Jackie Stone, who we love so much, who has 
been so good to so many patients in Zimbabwe. As you know, uh, she's been under fire on trial for treating patients with an ivermectin-based protocol that actually worked and saved lives. Uh, sadly, her prolonged ordeal continues. She is back in court tomorrow when the judge will review her application to have the charges against her dropped. And we know a lot of you, a lot of you have shared your moral and financial support, and she wants you to know how much she really appreciates that. You've been fabulous. We will keep you posted on further developments in her case. And... Finally, um, we have the long story short with our Dr. Bean. Uh, this is happier news because he has been taking a closer look at chronic inflammation, which underlies a lot of the symptoms that we see related to COVID and post-vaccine syndrome. Join Dr. Bean on long story short to dive deep into understanding what causes inflammation how it affects us at the cellular level and what we can do to treat it. So just go to flccc.net forward slash Dr. Bean. And lastly, of course, as you know, we are working hard to build the tools you need to be educated on prevention and early treatment. We continue to refine our suite of protocols. It's all in the work in the works and to keep an eye on the latest and greatest research to find out what's working and where we can have the greatest impact. So, you know, we're a 501c3. <laughs> Everything that we do is basically supported by you. So thank you. Help us fuel the cause. Uh, donate to net today, uh, tomorrow, whenever you can. We are so grateful you enable us to spread the word and to do this work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank all of you. And we'll see you here next week when we'll answer more questions and have more information and maybe a new protocol. You just never know. We're working on them. Thank you.